0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome to New Books in Latin American Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm Rachel Newman, a host on this channel. Today we'll be speaking with Nora Garala, author of the book Taxing Blackness, Free Afro-Mexican Tribute in Bourbon, New Spain, published in 2019 with the University of Alabama Press. Nora is an assistant professor of history at the University of Houston. Welcome to the program. Hello. So to begin, could you share with us the story of how you
0: came to write this book? I started, I think, thinking about some of the key questions in the book as an undergraduate um, when I had the opportunity to study at a university in Southern Mexico and started going into the state and parochial archives there Uh, to look at marriage patterns. And I became interested in how free people of African descent, free Afro-Yucatecos, were making their life choices and making their families. And so you'll see that the theme of family really runs through this book. When I went to graduate school um, and was trained by Ben Benson III, I was still really interested in that theme. um, But we talked about the kinds of avenues that really needed to be explored in the archive with respect to Afro-Mexican history and tribute was one of those big questions. What did tribute do in free Afro-Mexican communities? How did people negotiate it? What was the point of it? Um, People in the Hispanophone and Anglophone historiography had talked about this issue um, but I think I brought to it that early interest in uh, the decisions that Black people made and how they tried to articulate their, themselves and their families into uh, the colonial regime in ways that would be advantageous or at least less uh, oppressive for them. So let's
1: get right into
0: the contents of the book. Could you maybe set
1: the stage um, for listeners to uh, get us situated in Bourbon New Spain in terms of the economic and political developments that happened during that era?
0: So, the transition to Bourbon rule in a lot of Spanish America um, involved reevaluating sources of income. And in New Spain, this was particularly influential for Black communities because there was more collection, more consistent collection of royal taxes in the form of these tributes. Um, And so the ramping up of this entire fiscal apparatus really came into its own in the second half of the 18th century. Um, But there's a lot of new research, um, exciting research that shows that some of these reform projects were taking place in the earlier part of the 18th century. So the transition to bourbon rule um, would have been felt by free Afro-Mexicans really from uh, the earliest decades of the 18th century, when there was uh, more and more emphasis on extracting more and more monies to finance the empire, um, not just to send back to Spain, but also to finance uh, projects in the Philippines and uh, on the peripheries of uh, of the Viceroyalty of New Spain. So even though Afro-Mexican tribute never ended up um forming a huge part of the royal treasuries, this was still something that, um, in this book, I wanted to set up as a tax that would have a real impact on uh, these communities, even if it was kind of a drop in the bucket overall um, in what historian Carlos Marichal has called the tax jewel of the empire.
1: So tribute might be a kind of unfamiliar form of taxation um, for some listeners. So could you explain a little bit more about how tribute worked and why it was that the Spanish crown, as your title says, taxed Blackness?
0: The origins of the tribute regime uh, lie in the the implantation of colonial rule uh, from the very beginning. So Indigenous tributes were hugely important for structuring colonialism and structuring identities in the Spanish Americas. And free black tribute built on some of the foundational ideas of uh, any form of, of tribute or pechos, these tributes between vassal and lord. And so that was a tradition that was established in Europe Um, And then in the Americas, this idea uh, that the Spaniards and their descendants didn't have to pay this specific tax, that they had almost this, uh, you know, noble status. And then indigenous nobility would also mean that you could be free from this tax. So this was a tax that was taxed on families. um, And it was a tax that was meant to stratify the society in certain ways that that having the obligation to pay this tax meant that you were a vassal and you were free, uh, but that not having to pay the tax was also a signal that you were important, that you had achieved something within the colonial regime. Um, And so the norm would have been for indigenous people and then later for black people to pay the tax. But a lot of people had exemptions uh, that that's meant something to them.
1: Um, So to expand a little bit upon this, uh, could you speak to the ways that new Spanish society was hierarchically organized, what these different groups were? Um, And to tell us a little bit about the categories of social difference that were operant in the 18th century, um, because you explain in the book that they're different than modern forms of inequality that we might be more familiar with.
0: Yes. And so that distinction between uh, the crown and the subject is really fundamental for understanding tributary status. Um, and so that was kind of the big divide was who was the tributary and who wasn't. And in the 18th century, uh, Bourbon bureaucrats really latched on to that distinction as a divide in the society, because what's happening in the 18th century is this dramatic expansion of free populations of color that are really forming um, groups that are not exactly indigenous, they're not exactly African, they're not exactly Spanish. They are people who identify as mestizos, mulatos, pardos, morenos, all these different words that tend to mean uh, people of mixed ancestry, people uh, defined by their color or by their calidad, their their social status, quality. and it's a it's a complex society socially, um, in which people have these different obligations and different privileges that are coordinated with um, their social status that some people have called a racial status. Um, we could call it a genealogical, a reputational status. Basically, what other people thought you were. Um, so your reputation is really paramount in a lot of this. It's it's not. Uh, as determined biologically, let's say, as um, we might start to think because there's a lot of fluidity. Um, But at the same time, historians have pointed out that saying that this is a fluid society is just not true. Um, So the extent to which people could push the boundaries of their status um, was partly constrained by their tributary obligations. So what color you were, what caste you were, what Quality you were; um, those things would feed into or be cemented by your tributary status. So it's a it's a society that is very complicated, and Bourbon reformers frequently referred to the infinite number of people of mixed ancestry who, uh, to these authorities, were um, you know needed to be controlled, and so imposing a tributary status that recognized in a way the diversity and the complexity of the population was sort of a a bourbon um, attempt to make a system that that would solidify these sort of slippery categories.
1: Could you tell us a little bit more about Afro-Mexican communities during this era? Um, You know, it sounds like there was, uh, they belonged to communities that were mixed, but also maybe you could tell us just about the size of the Afro-Mexican population, Um, Just a little bit more about that.
0: Sure. So by the end of the colonial period, um, the Afro-Mexican population, free people, uh, are the majority within Afro-Mexican populations. And um, overall, they probably made up between 10 to 13, 14 percent of the population. So they are uh, a minority, but not a a small one. they are distributed all over uh, what we now think of as Mexico. So that was one of the uh, findings in my work that I tried to bring out was that this wasn't um, a population that existed in a particular region. There were concentrations where there were larger communities of free Afro Mexicans, but you can find this tribute being charged or exempted in throughout this uh, entire uh, region. So, Central New Spain, Northern New Spain, Southern New Spain, um, you can find documents that refer to either the collection or the exemption of these tributes, and that also reference the presence and existence of Black populations. And in some cases, uh, these populations were very sedentary. They were farmers. Um, You could see generations in a community on these uh, documents that I've examined in, in the form of tax registers. You can see How rooted people were, um, how they worked the land, the kinds of uh, choices that they made to form families. And then in other cases, you can see people who are uh, more flexible, more mobile, uh, who maybe are practicing trades in urban areas, who move from place to place, who are minors, who seek work in different communities. So part of what the data that were collected in the 18th century tell us is that. Um, Black people had a variety of avenues that they followed with their families to try to uh, create communities or to integrate themselves into other communities of indigenous people or people of mixed ancestry. Um, And bourbon discourse at the time, there's a stereotype that I explore in the book um, that free people of African descent were just fundamentally given over to wandering and vagabondage. Um, And the idea of of vagos or vagabundos is very prevalent in a lot of these documents. But if you really go to the data, you see that tribute registers showed people who lived in towns, who lived in homes, who lived on farms, who lived in places that didn't suggest that they were just sort of wayward people wandering around. So the, the picture of the tributary subject that emerges from the data is one of uh, people who are very invested in creating families and creating communities um, invested quite literally.
1: So uh, maybe we could speak a little bit more about the sources, in fact. Um, So in order to extract tribute, the Bourbon State created all these kinds of records that tax registers you've mentioned. Um, Can you maybe you can tell us a little bit more about the texture of these documents, um, as well as the documents actually created by Afro-Mexicans to contest um, or otherwise engage with their tributary status. So maybe you could just share more about the nature of these sources and how the archives of taxation really tell us a lot more than just sort of who paid what.
0: My book draws extensively on the National Archives in Mexico, and it also uses uh, documents that I obtained by visiting the, um, places like Zacatecas and Puebla um, and other historians have done really important, deep local archival work um, recently. And of course, Mexican history is so rooted in these local studies as well that have provided the details that you really need to see how Tribute's operating at the local level um, in places like Michoacán or Colima, places that I wasn't able to go. Um, And so these kinds of records tell us a variety of things. First, um, they give us this kind of a type of census data. Um, they're not meant to be comprehensive because people who paid tribute were a specific subset of the population. So I wouldn't say that they're just kind of general population censuses. They tell us about families, they tell us about working people, Um, But in some cases, the local registers can tell us all sorts of different information that really wasn't officially supposed to be on there. So even at the end of the century, these documents are not totally streamlined, and they contain little details that you just think the collector might have thought, well, I'll just keep this in my back pocket in case I need to know 20 years from now that, you know, the Indian Pablo has adopted five young Black children in this village. And not include why or how or how he knows that. So you can find these little details in, in the registers that show you something about local life, but to really get into what tribute meant to people, I looked at petitions. Um, and these are a really rich source of information um that has been worked in in other places uh, by historians like I'm thinking of Sarah Alb Um, and these petitions help us see the importance of categories um, for people's social, legal and fiscal status. And so afro-Mexican individuals, families, corporate groups, they would all petition, to try to alter their tributary status. And they used a, a wide variety of uh, reasonings, which I can talk more about. Um, but those are kind of the two main things that that this book is built on. Well, I'm gonna say one more, um, which isn't, I guess, well, I don't wanna characterize bureaucratic documentation as exclusively boring, but some of it uh, is very tedious. So <laughs> there's the petitions, The lists, and then there's so much debate within uh, the bureaucracy itself about why charge the tribute, how to charge the tribute. Um, And a lot of it is very technical. um, But sometimes it it can be, um, you know, the guys get really flustered and they'll write things like, you know what, these collectors that we're hiring, who are they? The ones who can't write can read, and the ones who can't read can write. How can we deal with this? So there is a lot of, kind of frustration within the bureaucracy about how the tax works or doesn't work. So that, I would say, is kind of the third um, documentary basis of the book is all of the bureaucratic debate that goes into tribute because the free Black subjects are debating tribute, but so are the bureaucrats. They are not providing a sort of unified front about what tribute means absolutely. They're constantly discussing with each other how to improve the tribute system, how to expand it, why does it matter?
1: And just to be clear, these bureaucratic debates, did they have a public component or are these all internal conversations?
0: These are internal documents. Um, The things that regular people would have heard would have been the results um, when something was announced by the town crier. Um, So there will be within these documents sometimes, well, we came to this decision and therefore Uh, the town crier announced that all free black people have to come to the square and be registered within two weeks or else they will face this public corporate corporal punishment. Um, but the actual reasonings behind all of that, um, a lot of that is happening in, um, discussions and out those that are being passed back and forth between bureaucrats, um, and they weren't secret so much as just uh, they wouldn't have really been germane to anybody except for the guys who were talking about it. So the petitioners who began these suits, they would have had knowledge of some of the proceedings. Um, but did your average Black person in Mexico know about all of these debates? Uh, no. But there were some things that, that were discussed in newspapers, um, like the... Uh, decision to exempt anybody um, whose parentage was totally unknown. The status of foundlings came under uh, a lot of discussion at the end of the 18th century, and the exemption of the espositos was very important and was uh, was discussed in the Gaceta de Mexico uh, as well as within the bureaucracy.
1: So maybe you can tell us a little bit more about the lines of reasoning used by petitioners that you referenced before.
0: That was, I think, the part of the book that fascinated and motivated me the most because um, it really got into the dynamics of Black communities and how people thought about themselves in relation to other Black people, to Indigenous people, um, to people of Spanish ancestry. So there's a lot of um, ways that these petitions help us to see into the dynamics um, of what today we might call race or what we might call casta. Um, and some of them are uh, about the past and some of them are about the future. So a lot of the petitioners Um, And this was particularly true in the 17th century, but it also occurred in the 18th century. Um, People would say that they had access to proofs that they were descended from a conquistador um, or that they were descended from the first uh, immigrants or or pobladores of a particular place. Um, Alternatively, they might say that they were descended from people who had been involved in um, the... Violent suppression of indigenous rebellions or in the taking of indigenous lands. So there was a a lot of emphasis placed on uh, family histories of service to the crown and importance that could be passed on through um, many times from a a male ancestor who might have been Spanish, but who might have also been a mulatto, a person of African and Spanish ancestry. Then there were plenty of cases that looked To the present, Um, people might say that they were too poor to pay the tax, that they were presently engaged in uh, militia service to the crown, um, defending the coasts um, or their local communities. So there could be an aspect of current uh, status that that meant that you couldn't pay the tax. And then increasingly, as the 18th century went on, and, and you see these becoming more and more pointed at the uh, end of the colonial period, there are petitioners who are really deeply concerned that they've been mistakenly registered, and that this mistake is going to be carried on for generations to come. So those particular petitions are are kind of um, interesting in that I don't want to say, you know, as a historian, whether this registration was mistaken or not. Um, So there was a lot of, I think kind of, you have to be delicate about saying, were these people actually Afro descendants or had they just been uh, mistakenly registered as there was this huge push to expand the registers. And a lot of the people who made the registers were from other communities. They were coming from Mexico City out into these towns where they didn't know anybody. Um, and they would make these lists and then somebody would say, hold on, hold on. You know, I am the most important member of this community and I can't possibly be understood to be a mulatto tributary. And this is just terrible. Um, in one case that I talk about in the book very briefly, um, there's a man who claims that a commissioner came to town to make a list and just got an anonymous list of people from someone, he just apparently went to somebody in the town and said, "Can you write down all the people in this town who you think are mulattoes, and then I'm going to put them on a tribute register?" So you know, sometimes, I, obviously, I can't verify whether that is what really happened, but uh, the the haphazard nature of the expansion of these registers could result in the mistaken inclusion of people. And a lot of times for them, it wasn't necessarily only about the money. It was about the the financial obligation, which was considerable. But they would say, no, this is going to affect my children and their children. And all of us are going to uh, suffer a reduced social status, a reduced reputation, because people think of us as tributaries and as Afro-descendants.
1: So, um, were these petitions uh, effective? Uh, do you, I mean sometimes we don't know uh, the outcomes of petitions, but what did you find in that regard?
0: Yes, I didn't have a big enough sample of decisions to say uh, absolutely what at what rate they would be favorably decided. Partly because there's an overrepresentation in some ways of uh, short decisions that were favorable. So. You know, so and so is definitely allowed to be exempt from tribute. And that's the only thing, you know, I don't know all the decision making that went into it or petitions. Um, but there, I think by uh, the end of the 18th century, there is certainly a greater volume of petitions. And there is a greater amount of skepticism towards them within the bureaucracy of the Real Hacienda, the, the treasury in Mexico. And so these Mexico City bureaucrats are are being called upon to review more and more petitions as things become more and more centralized, and they don't have a lot of sympathy for the issue. Um, They think, well, these are disloyal subjects. These are people who don't deserve consideration. And if they really were, um, you know, vassals, loyal vassals, then they should just pay. So there is a kind of uh, animosity that you can see on the part of the, this new class of officials um, and on the part of, of bureaucrats in the intendancy system, once that is imposed, um, who say, you know, these petitions have no merit. They are clearly a rejection of the king's authority. So that is a big change in the the attitude with which petitions are received, and that does mean that a lot of them are rejected, um, either on the grounds that they don't have merit or on the grounds that they don't follow this very specific procedure that is set out in the ordinance for intendencies. So that um, that does mean that a lot of the petitioners are just sent back to square one. You don't have the correct documentation, or you didn't go to the right official. Um, But what I think happens uh, in terms of the the way that these petitions are received does change in the 18th century as the idea of being a petitioner starts to look less and less like being a a loyal vassal to some of these bureaucrats. Um, In the 17th century, there are plenty of cases in which Black people throughout the Spanish Americas claim exemption on the grounds that they are... Uh, the first to defend the crown against pirates, against incursions from uh, other imperial powers. And in the 18th century, a lot of the petitioners from central New Spain are talking about their uh, families and the unjust imposition of tribute in their communities. And so their reasoning starts to look to the bureaucrats less and less valid.
1: Maybe we can talk more now about this um, this theme of family and also genealogy, which is a word that comes up a lot in the book. Can you explain how family and lineage are connected to these questions of tributary status? And I'd love it if you could talk um, a little bit as well about the image on the cover of the book, which is from Acosta Painting.
0: So, there has been some debate in the historiography about how much regular working people, Afro Mexican people, um, would have relied on genealogical ideas to define themselves. Did they have access to that? Did they care about that? Um, And in terms of tributary status, there is certainly an argument that I make in the book and that I think is. Um, revealing that plenty of people thought that their family histories, their lineage, their genealogy was a perfectly good reason for being treated uh, with privileges. And so this element of genealogy um, in the 17th century and into the early 18th century is um, very interesting because many of these cases don't resort to the rejection of Afro-Mexican status. Um, Plenty of people petition with the idea of asserting honor and Blackness as being intertwined or at least not being exclusive. Um, And they say, you know, well, our family has this link to uh, a conquest or to a war or to some service that that defines us as privileged forever, regardless of our color, regardless of our current reputation, um, we should be understood to always have been important because our ancestors provided so-and-so service to the crown. And so those petitions show us something about family lore and family memory um, that doesn't reject blackness that says there's a a kind of honorable lineage that coexists with being black. And in the 18th century, we'll see more and more petitioners rejecting the status of mulatto entirely on genealogical grounds. Um, But those, those early discourses I think, continue to feed into the 18th century, um, they just kind of get drowned out by a lot of these petitions about mistakes and about uh, parsing all of the elements of casta. So some of the family dynamics that we see in these cases um, uh, reveal the, the, the ways that uh, patriarchy operated in some of these families, the ways that paternalism could operate. Um, And so some of the cases involve uh, male petitioners who even within their own families will decide to petition on behalf of some family members, but not others. So that also shows us um, some of the politics within the family. Um, So I'm thinking of a case that I, I treat in the book um, of a man who says that one of his daughters has made a better marriage, uh, and her children should be exempted from tribute. But really, his other daughter, he's not going to to fight on her behalf for her to be uh, exempted because you know her decisions do- didn't fit with what he wanted uh, for his family line. So we can see some of the individual decisions that um, collectively show us how. Um, how family politics could play out in these tribute decisions, which were very intimately linked to reproduction and to marriage. People could claim uh, that they should be exempted because of who they were married to at the present or who their ancestors had married. Um, So marriage and reproduction and sexuality and children, all of those things um, are one of the bedrocks of tributary status and Therefore, within these tribute petitions, we see people examining those the consequences of those actions. When my mother married so-and-so, she was exempted from tribute, or it's understood that I was raised in the house of my father, even though my father isn't married to my mother. So within all of these petitions we see, and the witness testimony, um, we see people's, sometimes their entire childhoods playing out on the page in some ways that are very tender, the ways that Uh, People try to represent that they were definitely part of the family can involve a witness says, you know, in one of these cases, oh, well, I always saw uh, so and so treat his son as his son. I saw him cradling him in his arms or I saw I saw him training him in his trade. So we can get a lot of um, of family stories that are are subsumed in these tales about tributary status.
1: To follow up on that, I wanted to ask about if it was possible to do sort of any comparisons with petitions written by indigenous groups, if they used similar types of arguments or whether the sort of lines of reasoning used by Afro-Mexicans seem unique to that community.
0: So this um, is a work that uh, is being done about fiscal categories and I think is really productive and really interesting, especially to compare uh, Peru and New Spain or compare different Uh, regions of the viceroyalties, and one of the things that uh, really distinguishes the tribute petitions for exemption in indigenous versus Afro-Mexican communities um, was the uh, potential to argue uh, cacique status. Um, the, The crown rules that Indian blood can be pure, that it can be noble. And there's no room for that within African ancestry. So the discourse of casta and calidad is always one of um, Black blood being somehow uh, a negative. And petitioners try to push back against that. But that's simply something that Indigenous people um, don't have to dispute on the same grounds because uh, that isn't the way that their tribute is set up. So um, the idea of arguing that you're descended from a cacique um, or even from uh, the Inca or from Moctezuma, from the emperor, you can do that if you're an indigenous person. And indigenous people also sometimes would um, use the tribute regime to try to attack uh, people who they said were of African descent and were usurping positions within the indigenous pueblo so, tributary status um, has a kind of meaning for Indigenous people because tribute monies um, can h- go to the community coffers. They um, being a being a tributary of Indigenous ancestry in a town meant that you were you belonged there, um, and so people of Afro Indigenous or African ancestry. Uh, often were included in that, but until they weren't. So that's where I think some of these tribute petitions come up. Um, you can tell that people who are being targeted actually have been in the community for some time, and then they must've done something that offended the rest of the community and then started targeting them by saying, no, these are Afro-Mexican tributaries. They're not indigenous tributaries. Um, so, Indigenous people had recourse to uh, a number of discourses that simply were not afforded to Afro-Mexicans or uh, Afro-descended people anywhere in the Spanish Americas because of the logic upon which the the Free Black Tribute was formed in the 1570s. The idea um, that people of African descent uniformly had once been enslaved and that there was this fundamental foreignness about them is written into those laws. And indigenous people uh, did not have to contend with those same discourses in their petitions.
1: So looking ahead to the independent period, um, so after independence, how did the legal status of Afro-Mexicans change or not? And what happened to tribute?
0: So one of uh, the most compelling uh, circulars that comes out during the wars for independence throughout Spanish America, the the idea of whether tribute is going to be abolished is is a very uh, attractive and important idea. And so um, Morelos in 1810 declares that not only is slavery going to be abolished, but also the idea of the castas and the idea of tribute, that there are tributary castes. Um, So there's still collection of free Afro-Mexican tribute throughout the war um, and into the second decade of uh the 19th century. So there still is evidence that that the tax is being collected. Um but without tribute, um you lose one of the pillars of caste, essentially. You lose these are these are concepts that have become very interrelated, calidad and tributary status. Uh, the the symbolism of paying tribute was one of the ways that people could know that you were black or know that you were indigenous because uh, sometimes we see described in the documents that people needed to come and publicly register as tributaries. Um, And there would be rumors, people would know who was a tributary and who wasn't. So once you don't have that tax, that actual sign of uh, showing people what caste you were, what calidad you were, then there's going to be a much uh, that, that's a complete um, erasure of that, that underpinning of, of caste. So in the 19th century, um, we still see the label of Indio being used in um, some ecclesiastical documents. And um, I believe it's Matt O'Hara who's written about that um, and other historians as well shown that, that these categories don't just immediately disappear. Um, but with the fall of tribute, and of course, the fall of uh, colonialism, there's no royal tribute, then there's no royal status that's specific to free black people. So now, um, that, that that tributary status, which was one of the hallmarks of being a mulatto is no longer in place. And that means that what, what is the uh, importance of being a mulatto if you're not a tributary? Um, it was also tied to being part of certain confraternities or part of uh, militia, but these kinds of corporate statuses are, are going to um, be also dependent on, uh, on tribute. So when tribute falls, there's one less way, one of the most important ways I would say uh, to determine who is of what casta.
1: So, jumping a bit ahead in time, uh, this year in 2020, um, the Mexican census actually included Afro Mexican as a racial category for the first time um, in its national history. So, could you tell us what you make of this development in light of your research that's on, admittedly, a much earlier period?
0: I think that um, this question needs to be in the hands of. Afro-descendant communities, and so a lot of the um, the kinds of discussions and activism that surround it in the colonial period were undertaken by free people of African descent who wanted to debate, dispute, disrupt negative ideas that were associated with blackness. And today, there's another dynamic of recognition. Um, of combating the erasure within Mexican national discourses that denies the existence of uh, Black communities. So I do see a common thread in the ways that Black communities and individual Black people have uh, confronted these uh, discourses that today we would use the word racist um, to describe them, that they were uh, these very oppressive ideas, either Um, in the 18th century, that Black people were disloyal, that they were disruptive, dangerous, um, that they didn't have families or jobs, Um, or to uh, the 20th century, that uh, they simply didn't exist, they have no history, they have no impact. Um, So I think that the registration of uh, data on Black people is it's another interesting parallel, because in the 18th century, all the data was there. Um, historians just needed to look at it in order to develop an understanding that you know, beyond the idea of, of the presence of Black people, we can understand the experiences and the impact of Black communities uh, to some degree, right? We're still looking through the lens of these uh, bureaucratic and imperial documents, but In the case of the present moment, um, I think that it's a a very different reasoning behind registering people. Um, Are people allowed to decide what status they want to occupy? Uh, On some tribute registers, there's just a little phrase that tells us um, something. And, And this is used from the 16th century onward. You see the two words, dice ser, he says he is, or she says he is, or she says she is. So what someone said that they were might be recorded on these tribute registers. So in that way, we do get a little bit of a sense of how people wanted to articulate their own status and their own identity. And that is a fundamental difference uh, in the purpose of census uh, making, um, you know, an inside form in the colonial period and today.
1: Could you uh, maybe... Wrap up this conversation by telling us what research you're working on these days.
0: So, I have ventured into an earlier period. And this is my um, kind of reawakening because I'll tell you, the 17th century is really fascinating. Sometimes I feel like I've been shortchanged spending all this time in the 18th century. Um, So, my new project is uh, taking me into an earlier period and a more global uh, orientation. This book really is uh, an Atlantic story. It's also a story about local communities in New Spain. Um, And I was hired in one of the positions that I've held since graduating as a world historian. And this really got me thinking about uh, kind of global Mexico. So right now I am working on a book about, uh, it centers on an East African man who was enslaved uh, in uh, Portuguese Asia and then in Manila and then in Mexico. And so I have been uh, looking at his life, at how he um, represented himself in court, the kinds of relationships that he formed. Um, And I think I'm still really fascinated by the dynamics of the household. These are some of the studies that are really motivating me, and some of the ways that people talk about what went on in their homes um, is very fascinating to me. So I'm trying to uh, look at a very different household formation as well. And in this book, um, I focused on the family formation of free people of African descent. Um, In my new work, I am looking at the dynamics in a household uh, in which this Spanish merchant in Mexico uh, held multiple people from uh, Asian and African backgrounds in slavery. So this is a a very different type of household from the ones that I examined uh, in my first book. But um, I think there are some parallels because uh, in this book, I talk a lot about calidad. Well, I'm interested now in an earlier period in how people define themselves, how they uh, stack themselves up in a in a household hierarchy. Who uh, had power to to uh, do which jobs or to make which decisions? Who was able to handle money in the business? So there are different questions, but I think they they speak to some of the um, interests that I took in this book in how people tried to imbue their identity and their status uh, with greater uh, prestige. Even, even when it just looks like a very small change, um, people fought for these changes. So uh, that is kind of where I'm trying to take uh, my next book.
1: Sounds extremely exciting, and I'll be looking forward to learning more about that. So today we've been, we've been speaking about the book Taxing Blackness, Free Afro-Mexican Tribute in Bourbon, New Spain with author Nora Garala. Nora, thank you so much for taking the time.
0: Thank you.